these letters of Paul all culminate and revolve around Christ in us. Christ in you. Which is the formation of the church. Okay, This is the big truth of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. That the church is the people of God. The church is the true people of God. The the church is what Israel was always meant to be. And how is the church that? Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And that was Messiah. And Messiah was the fulfillment of everything God had always wanted in humankind. And now that Messiah has come and has shown us the way and has undone the effects of sin... We now can be filled with His Holy Spirit. We can be forgiven of our sins, filled with His presence, so that we can actually live as Christ. That's the gospel. That's what Paul wants to get through to to whoever he's writing to. Um, And so, I've been liking ending with communion, because it, it all points toward that. Okay, If anything says Christ in you, it's communion. We actually partake of Christ, his body and his blood. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to do that at the end as sort of a, an acknowledgement that that is the culmination, that that is the focal point of everything that we, that we do. Um, we will be in Philippians today. And Philippians is great. Uh, this kind of keeps getting better. This has been probably the most enjoyable uh, teaching I've ever done. It's like not even preparing. It's just like I get to, I get to be in the Word and then talk about it. <laughs> this is what I would prefer to do anyway. Um, so that's the center of the the center of, of Paul's letters is the gospel. They are all very different. So that that unites them all, but they're all different. They speak to people in different ways. He has different relationships with his different audiences. There's different situations going on in each of the uh, regions that he's writing to. Okay. Um, so Philippians is actually one of the more unique letters of Paul. And uh, that's actually a big part of, of um, why it's important, is the uniqueness of it. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to give a little background. Uh, what, what I'm going to do is give a little background on Paul's relationship with the Philippians. Uh, talk about what makes the book of Philippians unique. And, um, and then kind of talk about how uh, there's just one really primary message <laughs> in the book, and everything else sort of boils down to that. And then what I'm going to do, so I'm going to do that hopefully maybe in 20 minutes or so. And then what I'd like to do is just read through the whole book. It's, it's short enough to where we can read through it, and I'll stop at a few places and just make, make some comments. Uh, one of the things about a letter like this is it was written to be read in the community. And uh, so I'd like to do that. I'd like to kind of get back in the spirit of, of the way this letter would have been uh, interacted with when Paul wrote it and sent it with uh, Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. So uh, let me pray real quick. Father, uh, do send your Holy Spirit. Uh, unlock the truth. Uh, the same spirit that moved Paul along uh, to, to, to write this letter. Uh, I pray that you would uh, move us along to hear it and to receive it in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So we first hear of the Philippians in the book of Acts 16. Um, you, could, you could flip there if you want. Acts 16. What happened in Acts 15? Anyone remember? Very significant uh, section of Acts. Very important. Uh, it was the first church council. It was the Jerusalem council. And it's, it's really uh, the place to go to figure out what the primary issues facing the early church were. The first big summit of the heads of the church had to do with to what extent are we to look Jewish as we respond to the gospel of Jesus? To what extent? What, what are our standards for these Gentiles who now glory to God, are coming into the church, are being granted repentance that leads to life. What are we going to do with them? 
And so they were trying to figure that out. That, was ha- that happened in between Paul's first and second missionary journey. He came back from his first journey. He said, guys, listen to what's been going on. The Holy Spirit is falling, and the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God. Um, and so they had to make some decisions. Then he goes back out on his second missionary journey. He wants to go back to the other churches that he's been to uh, to strengthen them. But he comes to a place called Derby, and, and there a, a man named Timothy is recommended to him. And the, the brothers there speak very highly of Timothy. It says he was well spoken of by the brothers. And the interesting thing is that he's the son of a Jewish woman and a, and a Gentile father. <laughs> an, interesting, uh, an interesting co-worker for the Apostle Paul. Uh, a unique, unique guy. Um, so after this, another really significant thing happens. They, they are headed in one direction toward Bithynia. And then it's really interesting how it describes how the Holy Spirit forbids them from going to where they were planning on going. God very obviously had a specific work prepared for them to do, not in Bithynia, but toward Macedonia. He gives Paul a vision. It says the Spirit of Jesus forbade us from entering into um, in Bithynia. So, the first place they go to in response to that call is Philippi. Okay, they've just been told by God directly, listen, you need to go to this area. I've been preparing it. There are people that need you there. Go to uh, Macedonia. And then they find themselves in Philippi. So in verse 11 of Acts 16, it says, Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and, from, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So it was a leading city, and it was a Roman colony. And a Roman colony, not all the cities were Roman colonies, only ones that showed a level of patriotism. Okay? And they were, there were some benefits to being a Roman colony. Um, and so there, some interesting things happen, right? They meet Lydia. We love Lydia. That's a great character in the, in the New Testament. She and all of her household uh, come to the Lord. Paul and Silas, who, who then was his traveling partner, um, are thrown in jail. And why are they thrown in jail? Anyone remember? They meet Lydia? Yeah. Exactly. Who did not know that? Raise your hand. See that, Annabelle? All right. <laughs> I just told you guys, you are the church. Um, so, uh, yeah, they free this slave girl from a demon, and it says her owners get mad, and they come, and what's the charge they, they lay against Paul? Hey, he is preaching against Roman customs. So, Philippi was a very uh, dedicated a city that was very dedicated to Rome, very patriotic, you could say. And so they said, when, they, when you want to get someone thrown in jail in Philippi, you say, hey, they're speaking against the customs of, of Rome. They're speaking against the motherland. So they get thrown in jail. Um, the other interesting thing is that when Paul, so he's in, he's in jail, he's miraculously freed. The jailer is converted, which is an awesome story, the Philippian jailer. Um, but after all that, he says, hey, guys, guess what? I'm a Roman citizen. And they're terrified. Okay, so this place was a very patriotic place, held Roman uh, citizenship in high regard to the extent that you could get someone thrown in jail for being anti-Rome or even just accusing someone of being anti-Rome. And you could terrify someone by saying, you wrongfully accuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. And it says they, uh, they came and apologized to them. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Uh, and they came out and apologized to them. You don't see that happen very often in Scripture. It's usually like whoever's in charge, you beat them and then let them go. They came and they apologized. Mm, sorry, sorry, guys. Don't tell Caesar. Right? 
Um, so they, they enjoyed their status as a Roman colony. They wanted to maintain that. They wanted to be faithful to the motherland. Uh, and that's the point there. And, and the, the relevance of that to the book of Philippians is Paul is writing to a people, a people who are, uh, their, their pledge of allegiance is to the Lord Jesus, right? Not to the Lord Caesar. Um, and they, they worship the one God. And so they're experiencing uh, some persecution for that, just as Paul did when he was there, right? When you fully operate as the people of God in this Roman colony, there's going to be Roman opposition, political opposition. Uh, Patriots want to come and and put you in jail. They want to maintain their status, okay? So they're experiencing, and he says in a couple places in Philippians, "You're, you're suffering the same way, same way I am, okay? The other thing is that Paul is writing from prison. Not the Philippian prison, but he, he writes to the Philippians as he's under arrest in Rome. This is at the end of Acts. He's under arrest at Rome, having appealed to Caesar. <laughs> so he says, yeah, the, the, the world system, they're trying to figure out what to do with me. You guys too. The world system is trying to figure out what to do with you. So you and I have this shared, this shared persecution, this shared difficulty in living out our calling as followers of Jesus in a very patriotically Roman context. Okay. Um, so go back to Philippians and go to, go to chapter 4. There's a little insightful section on um, Paul's relationship to, with the Philippians. Uh, from, Philipp- from Philippi, after the release, they go on to Thessalonica, as it, it's recorded in, in uh, Acts. Verse uh, 14 of chapter 4. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, hey, when all this was getting started, i.e. in Acts 16, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. Now, this would have been kind of like a, a formal arrangement. This was a, an acknowledged friendship, that there is a giving and receiving here. Okay? And various uh, ancient writers wrote about friendship. Uh, it was much more of a uh, formal thing in the ancient world, like Aristotle writes on friendship. Okay? Um, and uh, so he says, we were, we were in partnership in giving and receiving, meaning, hey, we, we were friends. And it was a mutually understood agreement, our friendship. Even in Thessalonica, so after they had left Philippi, even after we left, you kept sending us aid. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So, he has a special uh, relationship, a unique relationship. He doesn't talk about this in any other way to any of his uh, recipients, uh, at least in the letters that we have. So, let's talk about this. Um, the, the uniqueness of Philippians. Uh, as we've mentioned, he had a, a relationship with them right as he was getting started, right as the gospel was starting to expand into Macedonia, right after this big revelation from heaven that this is the region you need to reach. Paul says, in the beginning of the gospel, when we were starting to launch, you guys partnered with us. And no other church did. And we've maintained this partnership. So the book of Philippians is not like a lot of his other letters. It's hard to outline because it's not that kind of letter. This is a friendship letter. This is a catching up with life letter. Okay? In the context of that, there's a lot of relational exhortation that happens. But it's, it, it sounds different and you probably picked up on this, it's different than his other letters. There's not very many doctrinal points that he makes. Much of them are relational exhortations that he's making. Hey guys, you know who Jesus is? You know how Timothy is? You know how Epaphroditus is? You know what the gospel is? You know how to do this? Keep doing it. Right? So it's, it's, it's an exhortation. It's a letter of friendship and exhortation. He's not concerned, really, with correcting too much incorrect doctrine. Okay? Um, he does speak against some, some of the, their enemies, 
But he's not correcting doctrine like he did in Galatians. Um, He's not spelling out the, the basics of the gospel like he did in Ephesians. He's talking to them as their friend. Okay, and one couple interesting things here. He never mentions his apostleship. He doesn't say Paul, the apostle to the church in Philippi. Here's what he says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Just like, just like you all. He acknowledges their own leadership. He says, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You guys, have, there's a work going on. You guys, you guys have got it. We are your fellow servants. We have this relationship. This is a friendship. So it's much more friend to friend than it is apostle to uh, church. Okay? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here is the, um, here's the main exhortation in Philippians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear, that, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Okay? Engaged in the same conflict that I had, and I still have, you guys are in that. And so he's writing as a fellow sufferer, a fellow worker, fellow servant of Christ with the Philippians. Okay? This is much, we're in the yoke together. Okay? And, and this is, this is as, as peer-to-peer as he gets with a group of people. Uh, uh, okay. So that's the primary exhortation. The rest of the letter is basically an abundance of examples to back up this exhortation. Okay? An exhortation, he wants to include examples of how not to live in a manner worthy of Christ and how to live in a manner uh, that's worthy of, go- of the gospel of Christ. So he gives all these examples. Um, most importantly, the example of Christ himself, okay? which comes in the form of this great Christ hymn, which a lot of people think was... Uh, It was already a hymn in the early church, and he includes it. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. So, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the opposition to that that he's addressing? Uh, There's a few. Pressure from pagans slash Romans. Okay? Romans, uh, Roman politics and Roman religion were really one and the same. Okay? There was not separation of church and state. Religion in the ancient world was not sort of like a personal preference. Your religion was absolutely entangled with the way that you ordered your life and the way that you wanted to order the state, etc. Okay, so when I say pagans and Romans, Roman politics and Roman religion are one thing, okay? And Caesar's at the middle. Uh, There's also pressure from uh, our old friends, the Circumcision Party. Okay, he'll address that in chapter 3. Uh, but then the other issue is that there's some internal disunity. He exhorts them a lot toward unity, uh, in a particular way, but toward unity. And he actually names two people, um, Euodia and Syntyche, who apparently are at odds with each other. They're two women in the church. Uh, maybe two sort of like primary women in the church. And he's saying, you guys need to come around these women. Help them agree uh, so that you can live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay? So the primary exhortation is to live in a manner, and and so what does that mean? What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? And that's what this letter is about. What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Uh, And this all revolves around, like I said, um, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And we'll read that in full when we just read through the letter. But that's where it says, 
though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is the ultimate example. But I'll point out also that he gives the example of his own life. Paul says, look at me. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Look at my life. He names Timothy. He says, I'm sending Timothy to you. There's no one like him, guys. He's an example of what I'm talking about. Guess what? So is Epaphroditus. He almost died. He was so upset that you knew that he was sick, that he was worried, that you, that, that you found out that he was sick. And he was risking his neck for the, the, for the gospel. And he didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want you to make a big deal out of his sickness on your behalf. Um, so he says, look at all these examples. Look at this. These are lives that are lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ultimately, the chief example is Jesus. And insofar as these lives uh, reflect that, they are lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let me, just, uh, let me give you a few things and to, to look for, and then we'll read through. Um, the primary message is knowing Jesus. Okay? The way that you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel is you know Jesus. And this knowing is not just mental. Okay? It's, it's relational. And it's also transformative. As we know Jesus, we become like Jesus. Knowing has, it has to do with having your mind totally reshaped. The way, that you, the way that you filter and process information needs to be totally different. It needs to be like Jesus. So, when our, our minds become totally reshaped, as we encounter God, as we encounter Jesus by the Holy Spirit, our minds begin to think in a different way, and it's radically different. In this letter, you'll see sort of two ways presented, the way of Jesus and the cross, and the way of the flesh, enemies of the cross. Their God is their belly, he says. There's two ways of approaching life, rivalry, conceit, or Jesus and humility and emptiness. We want our minds to be in that Jesus way of thinking. This leads, he says, to a total radical forsaking of our own lives. As we see Jesus' life, and as we begin to know him, we look at our own lives, and like he says in chapter 3, we, we add it all up, and we say, none of this, especially my accomplishments, are worth anything. You know, it's not like, well, at least I had this going for me. He says, especially those things that were to my credit, those are loss. Because there is a totally different way of living and thinking. So then we forsake our own lives, and it causes us to live as he lives. Which means, well, we'll face some suffering. It won't necessarily look like success. We might be in prison for the gospel. But that's exactly, that's, that's the exact right thing. That, that makes sense. If you, if you look at that situation with the mind of Christ, you'll see, oh, this is a great example of living like Jesus. That is also the pursuit and the, and the, the thing, that's, that's what is the basis of unity within the body. We don't become unified by, you know, sort of moving toward each other with various compromises and conflict resolution strategies. Right? We totally abandon ourselves to Jesus. And if you have two people who are absolutely abandoned to Jesus, embracing the cross and the humility and the emptiness that, his, that he exemplified, if you have two people doing that, they're thinking through things in the same way. They've both died to themselves, and so can be unified. That's the basis of unity. Okay? Um, And then the final result of this is that it declares to the world who Jesus is. We meet Jesus. Our minds become transformed. We forsake our lives completely. We begin to experience the same kind of life as Jesus. That brings us into unity with each other. And that shows who Jesus is to the world. Sounds like a church to me. 
Sounds like a home group, right? I think somewhere in there are our five little points of the home, vision of a home group, right? That's what it is, and that, but that's what he's talking about here. And that's his primary exhortation. Be Christians. <laughs> and here's some examples of Christians for you to, uh, to think about. Okay, are we ready to read? <clears throat> this is good. Every time I move this on the recording, it just sounds so loud. It's like, it scares me. Okay. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's a unique relationship with them. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's going to catch them up with his own life, how he's doing, given his situation. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Um, And I'll, I'll mention here, when you think... When you look at situations like this, in light of the gospel, you'll see them in a totally different way. You see that actually, what appears as a misfortune, what appears as a, as a difficult situation, is actually moving the gospel forward. Um, one of the other songs that we sang this morning, um, he says, uh, When through uh, the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of woe shall not be overflow. For I will be with you, my, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. What that, what, what that means is, you, I'll give you the mind of Christ. I don't take you out of trouble. I give you the ability to see that trouble as, as progress for the gospel. Which is awesome. This is an amazing thing. And... Uh, so that it has become throughout the whole, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word word without fear. If I hadn't been in prison, these guys wouldn't have had that measure of boldness imparted to them. He says, "Granted, some some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry." which would be that bad way, that that way of of the flesh. But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? All these these guys can do is is advance the gospel, (laughs) so I'm not worried. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. And that becomes a key refrain. Rejoice in the face of whatever it is that, whatever experience you're going through that's making you like Christ and showing who Christ is to the world, you can rejoice in that. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, whether I'm released or whether I'm executed. Whether they let me out of here or whether they go ahead and take me on to, to execute me. And remember, he wasn't sure if he was some, he wasn't sure what awaited him at Rome. 
He says, you know, I see affliction ahead. It seemed like he was probably going to be killed, but then he just ends up on house arrest in kind of indefinite delay. That's how the book of Acts ends. So he says, I'm just kind of here. I'm not sure how it's going to end. And then he goes and talks about, well, either way. (laughs) Either way is fine. With full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I know what I'm about. I know what I'm going to keep. I know what I'm doing now, and I know what I'm going to keep doing if I get out of this. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, hey guys, I love you, I'm not sure, I might never see you again, and I might, I might be there soon. Regardless, keep living this life. That I might hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So... If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. In other words, guys, if there's anything I could ever get through to you by any means, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He leads with, be unified. Having the same mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. If we had time, I'd go into depth in those words. Those are significant words at the heart of our sinful inclinations. And they, are particularly, they have particularly negative effects in our relationships. Rivalry, other uh, translations say selfish ambition. What do I get out of this? Imagine if if we erased the question of what do I get out of this from our relationships. Just that. What do I get out of this? If we never did, if we never conducted ourselves in any other way in any relationship by what we could get out of it. (laughs) World peace. Right? Or conceit. Meaning ranking myself with against other people positioning myself within whatever social hierarchy I've imagined but in humility which is the opposite count others more significant than yourselves let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others be preoccupied where our flesh would be preoccupied with what we, what we can get out of it and what it makes us look like. Be preoccupied with what others can get out of it and what it makes them look like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is the Christ hymn. It goes from five... Through 11. Again, you know, this is, this is really at the heart of the gospel. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means that he knew who he was. He was fully God. Did he need to prove that? No. He had no need to prove anything about himself. He had no need to cling to anything that was his. And this is... By the way, this is exactly what gave God so many problems with 
his people in the Old Testament. Everything they did, they were trying to cling to who they were. This is why Eve ate the fruit in the garden. Though she was in the form of God, she thought that there was something else out there that she needed to grasp that God wasn't giving her. But Christ is not like that. He was fully God and didn't feel like he had to, had to defend his turf at all. Which is exactly what enabled him to do what it says next. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. You can make yourself nothing and take the form of a servant when you understand who you really are. If you feel like you have to prove something, or if you feel like you have to cling to something, you're never really going to be able to serve, and you're never really going to be able to to empty yourself for others. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Um, So there's there's a double humility here. Jesus, by whom all things were created, became part of creation, which is by far the greater act of humility. God becoming a man. As a man, then, it says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most shameful way uh, to be crucified. It was, it was precisely engineered to bring the maximum amount of shame. The cross. Uh, it, was, it was not... It was not a, an efficient execution. It was to, not just to execute, but to send a message. That this is what happens to those who are enemies of the state. And he became obedient. He, he, he experienced the most shameful, scandalous death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Hey, man. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. These words go back to uh, a lot of the actions, a lot of the things that grieved God about the people of God, about his people in the wilderness. There was murmuring. There was questioning. Well, I'm hungry. How, what, why, why am I going through this? If he's God, why can't he... Do all things. As soon as you grumble or question, you've lost your ability to reflect who Jesus is. If Jesus had come and faced with the decision to go to the cross or not, went, no, man. (sighs) Right? Instantly, the witness to who God was would would have been over. Okay? And he would not have been able then to do the will of God. Because it was not just enough to do the will of God, it was to do it in a way that pleased God, that said yes to God. Now he did say, if there's any other way. (laughs) But he also said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. To all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Listen, everyone around you is crooked and twisted. Rivalry, conceit, grumbling, complaining, that's the world in which you live. You've been called out of that, and you've been empowered to live in a different way. And so in the midst of this crooked and perverted and inward-turned generation, self-obsessed, if you live this life, you're going to shine like stars. You shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now we're going to get two examples of this life. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you see this is echoing that language? But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have also thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Um, A lot of people think that this letter itself was written as a thank you letter for a gift that Epaphroditus had brought to Paul and delivered to Paul. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He saved his life uh, for your sake and, and for my sake. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. Epaphroditus, Timothy, and and all kinds of guys like these. These are our heroes. These are the guys we want to imitate. uh, Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, and that's probably pagan uh, temple prostitutes. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That would be like the circumcision party. They're just mutilators of the flesh. They just... (laughs) uh, For we, we are the circumcision. Okay? It's not... Circumcision is a lot different now. We are the circumcision. What makes us part of the circumcision? We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what God has always been looking for. That's what, we, that's, that's what makes us a, the part of the people of God. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, check. Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law of Pharisee, which was like, you know, maximum. <laughs> These were the, the, the brainiacs. Right? These guys were, were really intense. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. You guys, you guys got this memorized yet? No? Oh, no? Okay, if you had, I was going to have you just take it from here, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, in other words, not being able to check off my own boxes, But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And here's what we're talking about, knowing Jesus. Knowing means experiencing, means uniting with. Okay, Know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The King James says, I press on to apprehend that for which I have been apprehended. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, Straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
And what, what's he forgetting that lies behind? It's his accomplishments. It's who he thought he was. Okay? It's not like, oh yeah, just forget all your failures. We do that, and our sins get forgiven, but we also forget all the good things we thought were to our credit. You leave those things in the past, too. If you're going to leave regrets in the past, also leave your supposed accomplishments in the past. <laughs> if, we're, if we're heaping it all up, just go ahead and heap it all up. It's all dung. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. It's all about having the mind of Christ. And if you keep walking with God, and if you keep straining forward, don't worry about it. Don't worry. You just hold true to what you've attained. And if it becomes apparent that your mind is still in that old way of thinking, don't God will reveal that. Just stay where you are in Christ and keep pushing. Okay? Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I like old songs. We just talked about a hymn today. I do not like the song, I'll Fly Away. Because I think it's, it's the opposite of, of, of our boast as Christians. Well, I'm not gonna, my, my hope is not that I someday fly away out of this bad place. My hope is that I'm a citizen of a kingdom that's pushing its way down into the earth through the lives of those who are submitted to it. And by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, he's subjecting all of this stuff to himself. He's triumphing over sin. He's triumphing over evil. And the will of God will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to fly away. It's coming down, right? Heaven and earth are being made one. This body, I'm not, I, I don't, I can't, it's not like I can't wait to get out of this body. I can't wait till God transforms this body by the arrival of his kingdom. Amen? That's our hope. That's what he won for us on the cross. Therefore, my brothers, for whom, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He keeps driving that home. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. doesn't matter what's happening in your life. If you cannot rejoice, you don't truly understand Christ. You don't understand the depth of his love. Rejoice. Always, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. All this stuff, all this apparently contradictory stuff. Wait, I thought Jesus was king. Why is all this stuff happening? Don't be anxious about any of it. You're a citizen of heaven, and by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, heaven is going to be one with earth, and the, and the king will reign. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because then you'll start to think about things in the right way. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned 
in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If we press on to know Christ, if that is our goal, it doesn't matter what will face us in life. It doesn't matter if we have a lot or a little. We will be walking with Christ. And we can do any of that. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So it's a book about knowing Christ, an exhortation to know Christ. In spite of outward pressure and in spite of internal disunity, press on to know Christ. That will be what unifies us and that will be what shows the world who Jesus is. And we do it by understanding who it is, by having our minds, setting our minds on him. And so this uh, body and blood of Jesus, this is a physical act that has been practiced for the whole history of the church to help us think in this way, to help us have the mind of Christ. Um, And so as we come this morning... uh, I don't think there's anything else I can say that's not in the book of Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a human. Being found in human likeness, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's why we come. And that's what what we want to remember today as we uh, partake of our Lord. Let's pray.